Weeks into a coronavirus-induced economic shutdown, some parts of Oregon could see some very small steps toward normalcy within a matter of days. I'm Elliot Noose, filling in for Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, a conversation with Ted Sickinger and Brad Schmidt, two reporters at The Oregonian and Oregon Live, covering the state's reopening plan. We talked about how communities will have to show they're able to handle a potential resurgence of COVID-19 cases, how businesses will have to dramatically change their operations to stay in business, and how former fixtures of Oregonians' everyday lives could still be months away from making a comeback. Here's that conversation. Brad and Ted, uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Glad to have you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I wanted to start out with a clip from today's press conference. As we're talking, we're just minutes out from Governor Kate Brown's press conference where she announced plans to reopen some businesses that were previously ordered closed in some parts of the state. And we'll get to the specifics of that in just a minute. But this is one of the top health officials in the state, Oregon Health Authority Director Pat Allen. As Governor Brown noted, Oregonians prevented infections and saved lives by adhering to the governor's stay-home orders and the closure of schools and non-essential businesses. It worked. Oregon flattened the curve. So far, we have avoided the tragic worst-case scenarios we've seen play out around the world, regionally, and elsewhere in the United States. Do we know what played a role in how Oregon has fared in preventing the spread of this new coronavirus? Was this savvy public health work or was there some some good luck or early interventions or what what do we know about that? You know, we have about 3,000 total uh, known infections to date, which is only a fraction of the total infections that likely have occurred. But our infection rate is remarkably low Um, Out of the people tested, we are um, about seventh lowest in the country and basically less than one out of every 20 people who is tested uh, ends up being positive. So, you know, public health officials have pointed to Governor Brown's stay home order issued in March as being a decisive turning point for us in slowing the spread of coronavirus This is a highly infectious uh, disease, and um, if you are unable to get people to stay home, then the risk of it transmitting and seeing that exponential growth that you've seen in, you know, New York and New Jersey can can really happen. So in many respects, we uh, were proactive compared to some other states across the country. And, you know, there's probably a bit of just luck, you know, if if we didn't have as many cases in the community at the time these um, measures were implemented, then and it was easier to slow the spread. Other places that either waited or already had more cases when stay-at-home orders started going into effect were left in more of a catch-up mode. That led us into today's announcement that uh, some parts of the state could reopen as soon as uh, May 15th. When we talk about reopening the state, uh, that's not something that's happening all at once, right? Ted, where is this going to start geographically speaking? It's likely that this is going to happen in some of the smaller rural counties first. The governor and Pat Allen and the chief medical officer of OHSU in today's news conference sort of laid out the criteria that counties are going to have to meet before the governor's office will approve their plan for reopening. And that's a, you know, it's a whole variety of public health prerequisites 
Those include minimum levels of testing and contact tracing capacity, adequate hospital surge capacity, quarantine facilities, and personal protection equipment. Um, and I think Pat Allen at the news conference said that the more rural a county is, the more likely it's going to be to be able to meet that threshold. But a lot of these, these counties have already submitted plans. They're very small. They're able to meet some of the, the, the contact tracing thresholds um, that the governor has laid out. I think adequate levels of PPE and testing are big barriers, but Pat Allen said today that they had finally received the kind of stockpile from the national stockpile, the term of testing media that these counties are going to need. So that, you know, there's a variety that should be in good shape to go forward on May 15th. Ted, what what is the timeline uh, or, or what do we know about the timeline for uh, the Portland metro area versus some of the rural counties that you mentioned? You know, we don't have specifics on that yet. And it's something I'm going to be following up with um, this weekend. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's clear, as Brad just mentioned, that you know, the metro area is going to need both a, a much larger PPE supply, a much larger contact tracing, you know, core of um, folks, um, much bigger uh, testing um, capacity. So it's pretty clear that those counties are going to be behind um, the May 15th deadline. I guess I can't say that with total certitude, but um, it seems likely. And I think that's what Pat Allen said today. And what are the sectors of the economy that we're talking about in this first phase that counties can, can apply to uh, to open up? What uh, what kinds of businesses are we talking about? Well, there, there are, I think, five different sectors. Uh, retail, restaurants and bars, um, you know, salons and personal services, outdoor recreation. Um, and, the, you know, the governor was, was very clear that you know, and we're not going back to, to life as normal anytime soon. And that large gatherings, I think they said today that gathering number is going to go up from 10 to 25 uh, permissible, but large gatherings for sporting events and, uh, you know, football games, basketball games, fairs, uh, concerts, theaters um, are really not going to be in a position to take place until, you know, through the end of September. And I think that's a that's a real downer um, for all of us. Um, but um, you know, again, these, these various sectors that I just outlined are going to be able to reopen with very specific um, guidelines and guidance on how they, um, they maintain social distancing. You know, restaurants have very specific guidance as well on how they're um, going to be serving their customers. If you're going to reopen, the employees will be required to wear masks um, that are provided by their employer. Um, you know, and all food and drink consumption ends by 10 p.m. Um, and if you can't meet that, you can only operate with takeout and delivery. Um, so what what is it that the state is hoping to do now that would make it any safer to go to a restaurant or a store uh, a couple of weeks or months from now than uh, than where we are today or, or a week ago? The uh, state of Oregon is still working on plans to figure out exactly how many contact tracers they need. Contact tracers are essentially public health detectives who would find someone uh, after they've tested positive for coronavirus and determine who they've been in close contact with to prevent the spread going further. 
uh, close contact is defined as 15 minutes. And so people who were within close contact of a known case, uh, they would be essentially interviewed and uh, public health officials would talk to them, basically tell them, you know, you should stay home uh, for 14 days from time of exposure. And then if you start developing symptoms, you need to get tested. And if that person then tests positive, then the chain begins again. And we go out and identify the next rung of Oregonians who may have been exposed. The state has said it needs to hire about 600 more uh, contact tracers. Uh, but the numbers have sort of been in flux. At one point, it's, well, we need 600 total, or is it we need to hire 600 more? Now they're saying what we're going to do is ensure that there are at least 600 more on top of what we already have. Uh, 100 of those will come from redeployed uh, Oregon Health Authority officials. Uh, counties are already currently redeploying staff. Places like Multnomah County, Washington County, Clackamas County, Marion County, they need dozens more of these uh, uh, contact tracers before they will be in a position to reopen. Where is that workforce going to come from? Where is the funding for that going to come from? Do we know that yet? Yeah, we do know that, um, you know, the counties are going to be ultimately responsible for hiring or seeking volunteers to do this work. In some cases, I know there's a desire to get volunteers involved, people who maybe have public health backgrounds who are willing to do this for free. A lot of it, you know, frankly, I think can be done by by the phone. Um, you know, you don't have to go actually meet with people. You just need to get them on the phone to let them know that they are at risk and need to stay home. And there's uh, federal money uh, available that would help uh, backfill um, a lot of these positions. But uh, again, you're talking about hundreds of people that need to get um, brought in, trained. Uh, computer system needs to be sufficient. And uh, all of this stuff needs to happen within a few weeks uh, if Oregon is looking to reopen these counties. And those rural counties are clamoring for some of the cash that uh, Oregon has received from the feds and uh, has yet to be dispersed to. Um, local entities and uh, other than maybe some of the, the, the larger metro counties um, um, and they, they believe that they're going to need that res- you know those resources um, to comply here Brad uh, you've written about uh, how difficult it's been uh, to get tested for COVID-19 in Oregon uh, to what extent has that changed and, and how far do we have to go um, to get to a, a more firm reopening um, position? You know, the state of Oregon has actually seen uh, its testing numbers increase pretty dramatically over about the past three weeks. Um, Currently, the state's testing about 13,000, a little bit more uh, people per week, which equates to about 1,900 people a day. A week before that, it was about 1,700 people a day. And a week before that, it was about 1,300 people a day. So um, more people are definitely getting tested, and um, it should be easier to get tested if you're looking for it. Back, if you go all the way back to March, uh, the state was the only game in town. The public health lab in Hillsborough was the only place you could get tested. And at the time, the state criteria was essentially you have to be hospitalized with um, severe respiratory illness, and, uh, and, and then and only then can you get tested. And then private labs uh, started offering tests in about mid-March, and then you started seeing the numbers increase. Um, Today, the hospital systems in Oregon are largely responsible for testing and then analyzing the, uh, the coronavirus tests that we have. 
the state has said that the goal was to do 15, be able to do 15,000 tests per week. So we have that testing capacity. And as you know, conversations have evolved over the past couple of weeks, it went from, well, let's have the capacity to do 15,000 tests to, well, let's actually test 15,000 Oregonians to today where you hear Patrick Allen, the director of the Oregon Health Authority say, let's actually ensure we're testing more than 15,000 people per week. And, you know, these are ambitious goals because you want to be able to uh, test everybody who's getting sick to make sure that they uh, know if they have coronavirus and to stop them from spreading it. But despite all of this, Oregon is actually one of the um, worst in the nation in terms of uh, the testing output that we've seen to date. Um, you know, according to uh, statistics that uh, were compiled by the COVID tracking project, Oregon's the 11th lowest in the country at testing, testing about 16 people per thousand uh, as of uh, when we're recording this. So clearly we have some ground to make up, but that's, I guess, offset to some degree by the fact that we don't have um, as many cases as other places. So as for the goal of where the state wants to go, they want to ensure that testing is available on the region-wide level to do 30 tests per week per 10,000 people. And um, as of the most recent data that the state had made available last week, um, most of these regions were not yet there, but there's a belief that they will be able to get there um, by the time reopening uh, happens. Let's uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back to learn some more about this plan to reopen parts of the state. So we've seen little bits and pieces of these plans come out in draft documents and then uh, they change um you know in in draft form and then the final version is a little different from that. Can you explain what is going on there? Who, wh- what is driving some of these changes, and um, is it just the nature of that? There's no playbook for an unprecedented event like this. I definitely think that's part of it. Um, one of the maybe most interesting examples is Mike Russell and I wrote a story about a week ago about the restaurant plan, and at the time they were kicking the tires on the idea of okay, if you visit a restaurant. You know, can you voluntarily give your name, your phone number, the time you were there? So if it turns out that there was some sort of exposure uh, that we know you were at the restaurant and that you could have been potentially exposed and we can contact you for purposes of contact tracing. But of course, it brings up the issue of privacy and where do you go with that? And and frankly, it brings up logistics. And so that is no longer part of the, the plan uh, that was rolled out by the governor's office. And why? Well, you know, Nick Blosser, the governor's chief of staff, said it sort of sounded good in theory. But when you start drilling down on the details, particularly a place like a restaurant, given the state's criteria that close contacts be for about 15 minutes, can you really say for sure that there was 15 minutes if your server comes and takes your order and then brings you food and then pay you pay? Did you really get 15 minutes of FaceTime with the person? And, you know, how do you calculate that? And so, you know, frankly, I think it just turned out to be more of a logistical challenge than they were anticipating. And that's what prompted them to uh, remove that from from something like a restaurant. But having said that, you know, when if you go get uh, your haircut or if you get a massage, clearly you're going to be in close contact with that person for 15 minutes. And so those types of businesses are going to be required to um, maintain some sort of uh, record on who they're seeing. So if there is something, then uh, they'll be able to contact people um, to ensure that they know they may have been exposed. What do we know now about 
even as businesses start reopening and people start going back to work, what do we know now about what's going to be different uh, for for the long haul? I think the the governor made clear today that um, we are not returning to life as normal, either here in Oregon or elsewhere, and that these social distancing guidelines are going to have to remain in place for quite some time until we have effective treatment and a vaccine in place. Um, you know, that the gatherings of 25 people will be um, permitted. They're going to track this and determine whether or not there's a surge in cases. And, you know, I think they want to stay away from the possibility that we're going to seesaw back and forth between opening and closing. So they need to keep and remind Oregonians, because this is really about voluntary compliance for the most part, um, to, you know, continue to practice social distancing uh, the virus is still lurking out there and, you know, could flare up. Um, she made very clear that, again, these large gatherings are not going to take place anytime soon. Um, and that, you know, that's a broad swath of activities and, and things that Oregonians love to do. Uh, you know, they were talking through the month of December on large gatherings. There's not going to be a vaccine in place or, you know, available in September either. So I'd be surprised if, you know, we see that, you know, even available then. Yeah, but I, I may be surprised. As we sit here today, much of the guidance that has uh, has come out of the governor's office, you know, is really clearly aimed at reopening parts of the economy, the business sectors that have closed. Um, it's it seems to be an effort to ensure that more Oregonians don't lose their jobs and that people continue to spend money to help people stay employed, but. You know, if you have a kid who you're unsure whether there's going to be summer camp, as we sit here today, it's still pretty ambiguous as to whether there's going to be a summer camp that you can send your kids to. If you uh, are looking to renew your blazer tickets for next year, it's pretty unclear and perhaps even unlikely that there's going to be blazer games that you as a fan are going to be able to to go to. Uh, if you are a office worker, say, I don't know, at the Oregonian, <laughs> um, there's it's it's unclear today when uh, I'm going to stop working from uh, my home office and, and return back to uh, our, our downtown uh, office space. I mean, there's a lot that's still unknown. And, and until we see how some of these counties are able to reopen and whether uh, infections and hospitalizations spike, I think we're just kind of all in the in the um, in the to be determined category for for what it means in, in your day to day life. What does uh, reopening mean for some of the workers who are currently out of a job, um, and especially service workers who can't work remotely, um, and and those who may still have uh, health concerns? Uh, I think it's probably clear that you know the capacity of restaurants and bars. Uh, for instance, are going to be you know, down by 50%. I don't know whether employers are going to be able to bring back uh, their staff full-time. Some of these workers, if they're working part-time, are, are not earning more than their normal benefit. Um, they'll still be eligible for, uh, for unemployment benefits at a reduced level, plus um, that $600 federal supplemental payment until, I believe it's July 30th. Um, but again, it's going to be a, a slow process, and uh, this is, it's, it's, there's a great deal of uncertainty, um, particularly for you know restaurants and bars in terms of how to how to deliver this and what their business model really requires in order to survive financially. 
Yeah, and we already have had 360,000 job losses um, as of about a week ago. And many of those people are still finding it frustratingly uh, challenging to get uh, their unemployment claims processed through the state's um, website or waiting you know, hours on hold to try to talk to somebody. And so, you know, as you look at how all of this plays out and you understand sort of the importance, at least in um, the eyes of some state officials, uh, about the importance to ensure that more people don't lose their jobs and that the people that have the jobs um, continue to at least maintain some level of um, city hours. Do workers who, uh, you know, perhaps have underlying medical conditions that could make them more susceptible, do they have any choice in the matter if they're recalled back to work? You know, it's unclear exactly what employers will be asked to do, but the state's general guidance is that people who are at risk for severe complications, which include those people who are 60 years of age or older or have underlying medical conditions, should still stay home uh, even if you feel well. Yeah, and again, there are some pretty specific guidelines around workplace safety, you know, implement physical distancing, um, you know, increase physical space between workers, restrict the use of shared items or equipment, you know, reinforce meticulous hand hygiene, regularly disinfect commonly touched areas. And, you know, again, employees are encouraged, I think, in all sectors to require employee use of um, face masks. Um, although it, it is, it's only mandatory, I think, in, in certain situations, including restaurants and bars. Again, they want to limit the number of employees gathered in shared spaces, um, restrict non-essential meetings, um, and uh, you know, advise employees to stay home and notify their employer if they're sick. So where does your reporting go from here? What, what kinds of things are you going to be looking for as some of these counties do begin to uh, reopen. I have been tracking the daily hospitalizations with great interest. The state didn't begin releasing its list of current hospitalizations until April 8th, at which time there were about 150 people um, hospitalized with confirmed cases of COVID-19. And as of most recently, that number has dipped down below 100. And so that's a massive decrease from where we once were. It's not all positive news because some of those people died while hospitalized, um, but ultimately um, the number is trending in the right direction because the people who have died aren't being replaced by new patients. And so that is something that we are going to be watching every single day. Where are these numbers at? Are they going up? If they're going up, in what regions are they going up? and, uh, and when, if at all, does that trigger um, the state to need to halt or hit the brakes on, on some of these um, reopening plans? Yeah, and I'm going to be tracking you know, pretty closely you know, which counties are actually you know, prepared at this point and in the future to reopen. What's it going to take for some of our larger urban counties? Well, the counties are in very different situations. Um, you know, the, the, the coastal counties, they're small they should be able to reopen and meet some of these thresholds, but I think they're worried about, you know, it's going to be 80 degrees this weekend and they're worried that there's going to be, you know, a major influx of Oregonians running to the coast that could ultimately, you know, overwhelm their, their health systems and cause new outbreaks. And yet they're also dependent on this you know, tourism business for a deal of employment and their county revenues. So, they're trying to thread the needle, um, and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of pressures um, they face from outside 
um, the county and uh, you know, what circumstances crop up there. And the infection rate is also another key metric to be watching. As I said earlier, you know, about one in 20 people who are tested in Oregon come back positive for having coronavirus. Um, if on daily test results, you start seeing the rate of positives come back higher, then that means that more people are testing positive at a greater rate than we would have expected. And uh, that's definitely something that needs to be watched. And the other thing with this is that, you know, it takes a while for it to spread. And so you typically wouldn't start seeing some of these increases for perhaps two weeks, perhaps three weeks. And so to the state's credit, you know, they're being pretty cautious in this whole rollout, particularly compared to other states. And, you know, their new checkpoints are going to be 21 days that they want to watch uh, between phases before they try to expand to a phase two. Uh, for even greater and broader reopening. Um, so they clearly know that it could take a while to start registering spikes and they don't want to um, move too quickly and then find out that uh, that it's spread before they realized it. So this uh, pandemic is obviously pretty unlike anything that any of us have ever covered, but it's also sort of revealed a lot about the rest of our world, the, you know, our institutions and um, uh, some of the sort of structural um, st- structural issues have been exacerbated by it. And I'm curious if this if your work on this story has made you think any differently about stories that you've reported on the past or institutions that you cover. I mean, it does. It does make me wonder about how you know some of these changes could be permanent and how you know institutionally you know, having done all this telework, um, having shut down what the long-term impact of that is going to be both socially and, you know, in the business world, um, um, having recognized that, you know, for instance, the Oregonian, that we can all accomplish our jobs from home pretty effectively, although there's certainly, you know, some hiccups with that. Um, you know, what does that mean for us going forward? What does it mean for, you know, all kinds of businesses? Um, and, uh, you know, kind of the resources that we expend in order to live and work in these, um, you know, dense downtown areas. Um, and I, I do think there's going to be some long-term impacts that, that play out. And it's, it's uncertain what they are yet, but uh, I don't think this all just goes away. Both of you cover um, public agencies that, you know, Ted, what you said could easily apply to them as well as they're going to be looking to, to adjust their budgets, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at an agency like the Employment Department, you know, they've been sitting on money to update their IT system for for years, nearly a decade. I think they've had the, the funds in place to, um, to replace this old COBOL-based system that they're relying on and, and simply can't handle the volume or, um, you know, some of the special circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I think that's probably you know, coming to light throughout a lot of state agencies, you know, how are they prepared for this kind of emergency? Um, and it really has tested, you know, some of those institutions, structures, emergency management, um, you know, incident management capabilities that we have in place. Um, and, you know, I, I think as this cools off, uh, you know, we're going to be examining that in, uh, you know, some detail, and trying to determine whether or not something similar in the future could be handled a whole lot better. And, you know, as a former city hall reporter, when um, when it became pretty clear that 
this was going to be a long-term issue. You know, you can understand if there's a budget cuts at the state, maybe that's a little hard to wrap your head around. But when it comes to city finances, it's like, okay, well, you know, is there a park that I can go to or is there a police officer that's going to arrive if I call? And property taxes are a large part of the city's budget, but they are far from the only thing. The city's city of Portland's budget is has has huge amounts of money built on um, business income tax and built on um, you know tourism, hotel taxes, for instance. And so, if the economy doesn't recover, that is going to necessitate some sweeping cuts. And ultimately, you know, there will be police on the streets and there will be parks. But what level of service are you going to get going forward? And I think, you know, those are some of the places, aside from your own pocketbook, that you might start to see um, some of the biggest differences as a result of this pandemic. Well, I mean, just to add tack onto what Brad just said, I mean, it's pretty clear that the state is going to be facing, you know, across the board losses in revenue. We're highly dependent on the personal income tax that provides 85% of general fund receipts for the state. We have 360,000 people unemployed. Clearly, those are going to take a major hit. Uh, The lottery revenues are falling off the table. A lot of agencies rely on fees and, um, uh, you know, specific taxes that um, are disappearing. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see after the May 20th revenue forecast, how big we forecast that hole to be. And then um, I think the governor is going to call a special session to determine how she's going to deal with that and where the, the legislature wants to make these across the board cuts that are going to be necessary. Yeah, and I guess the only other thing I'd, I'd want to add is you know, the state officials have been really clear that we're in uncharted waters here and they frankly don't know what to expect. There's a, a desire to reopen the economy and ensure that people are able to keep their jobs and that more people don't lose, uh, lose their jobs. But ultimately, None of us have ever been through this before, and there's a degree of guesswork here, and, um, and, and they don't know with any certainty that by moving forward with this, that it's not going to um, ultimately um, cause more um, harm than good. And so, you know, in a month or two months, we'll have a much better uh, answer on, on whether this was the right move uh, for, for where we're at. Well, thanks to both of you for taking the time to uh, walk us through some of the decisions that have been made around reopening uh, businesses in Oregon. Um, appreciate your taking the time. Thanks, Ayat. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with The Oregonian. We're breaking schedule to bring you this episode early. We won't have a usual episode on Monday, and Andrew Thien will be back the following week. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or review in iTunes. It helps others find the show. Until next time.